You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis and joining me to break down the week in media and marketing from a very locked down Sydney is Tim Burrows. Hello, Damien, confirming I am locked down. I can see you are locked down. Olivia Crimmel. Hello, yes, also in lockdown. And Xander Wilson. G'day, g'day, Damo. Later in the Mumbrella cast, Xander will be talking to the Bragg Media CEO, Luke Gerges, about rapid expansion and opening its New Zealand operations. Right now, we're fortunate to reach 17% of New Zealand, I think, at the moment in terms of our publication reach. Um, And we were able to just find some amazing people down there. The impact of the pandemic on the music industry and revenue... When the pandemic first hit, I can't remember the exact date, but it was someday in March, we lost a million dollars worth of revenue in three days. And the surprising profitability of Rolling Stone magazine. Now, the print magazine in of itself is by no means a profit centre, like a huge profit centre, but it is profitable, which was an amazing surprise to me. But first, the week's topics. Federal government's two new COVID-19 vaccine campaigns. Chris Jantz departs nine and... A string of big moves in the world of media and marketing. This week, the Australian government released two COVID-19 vaccine campaigns aimed at increasing the rates of vaccination in Australia. The primary campaign created by BMF urged Australians to arm yourself against COVID-19. Another featured a young woman in hospital suffering from COVID and was first rolled out in Sydney where the cases are high and lockdowns have been extended. BMF told Mumbrella it was not involved in that creative work. This is relevant to everyone here and has been talked about widely in the industry, so let's jump right in. Uh, Liv, your thoughts on the campaigns? Well, I think the ABC's Dr Norman Swan summed up the Australian government's approach to vaccine campaigns really well when he said it was produced by a communist government committee. Honestly, as a former marketer, I just don't get it. The campaigns have either been painfully dull, uninspiring or completely forgettable, or as the most recent one illustrates, graphic and flawed. Neither of the two new ones really encourage anyone who is hesitant about getting the vaccine to rush out and book an appointment. So if you're already on Team Vaccinate, the Arm Yourself is just wasting money to tell those people what they already know. And if you're on Team B and are sceptical about the vaccine, The woman in hospital breathing heavily is confronting, but unlikely to prompt action from anyone, especially given its first message is COVID can affect anyone, not get vaccinated, which only comes after three other messages. I realise that health advertising is extremely difficult, and especially when you are dealing with a conservative government that has too many layers of bureaucracy, but as a taxpayer and someone who knows the creative brilliance within the country, I expect more. Yeah, I've got to say, I've got to say, I was uh, quite confused by the, the messaging, particularly being in that age bracket that uh, can't easily access the Pfizer vaccine at the moment. Can go to my GP and ask uh, for whether the AstraZeneca vaccine is uh, appropriate for me. But uh, Tim, two very different campaigns. <laughs> We keep talking about the CMOs in in government at the moment, but that's always chief medical officer. Uh, CMO in terms of a chief marketing officer, do we actually need one here? It sounds like we might. Look, this might be one example that points to 
you know strategy problems it's and it's worth for, for people who maybe haven't caught the ads explaining the two that that Liv's talking about so the one is the one showing arms with that very punny arm yourself which uh yes i did enjoy the uh sean mccullough's mad as hell uh saw a reprise from uh the character of the uh the daily telegraph editor now on uh now n- now on secondment to the uh, department of health to come up with that just a bit of fun pun um so that that broke on sunday morning and then later on sunday we then saw the 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 other ad that lives talking about there where the, the young woman is kind of gasping for breath and you know there's a message about stay home get vaccinated um and before we almost talk you know more about the kind of execution themselves just the fact that they felt like they could have been put together by two completely different organizations you know there was you know if this was a you know a, a campaign from any sort of brand or two campaigns from any sort of brand there'd still have been various elements to kind of unite the two things that goes beyond that authorized by you know, a federal government Canberra at the end. Um, so it, yeah, it really strikes me. I, I can think of so few examples of great federal government advertising over the years. And I'm not just talking about underneath the coalition government, the same went for labor as well. You know, you kind of look back to, we've, we've talked about a bit about Grim Reaper, the, you know, the, the AIDS awareness campaign that Simon Reynolds did, um, you know, many years ago in the late eighties. Um, and then maybe the Unchain ad, which was, or campaign, which was around the GST, which Scott Wybin, um, created, but there aren't many examples. You know, you get you get powerful behavioural change at state level. You know, that's often where you get the health messages. You get you know organisations doing campaigning messages around you know giving up smoking or whatever. But there's just not many great examples of the government spending its money well. Now it's complicated because you know as does Liv alludes to, uh, you know, a lot of it is created by committee. But for all of the, it's not even tens of millions, it's hundreds of millions being spent. No government gets ROI. Um, so it do, you know, I do think it needs something like, you know, a chief marketing officer. Now, obviously it's difficult because you want them to be public servant, someone who is informing the public and persuading the public, not just campaigning on behalf of the party that happens to be in charge at the time, but it's just not working at the moment. Do you feel that this was a, a bit of a, a quick reaction? There are a lot of people saying these were worked on far in advance and this was just uh, a bit of dumb luck timing almost that it coincided with a, a severe outbreak in, in Sydney. But um, how did you see that rollout, Tim? Well, I think the Arm Yourself one had obviously you know been talked about for a while that something needed to be done about vaccine hesitancy because of the problems of communicating risk, particularly around AstraZeneca. And then, you know, I think, you know, what, what, what had sort of emerged was the other ad had been made much earlier, but hadn't been run until necessarily there was an outbreak in Sydney. Um, the issue then being that the messaging at the end was all wrong because it was still saying get vaccinated yet that audience was someone who was too young to to yet qualify for vaccination so if the message was you know unequivocally stay at home then fair enough but that was not what the messaging said 
Yeah, speaking about messaging, we've seen other countries respond uh, quite quickly and pointedly in terms of uh, their vaccination campaigns. Uh, Zandi, have you had a quick look around the, the traps globally at what other countries have been doing? What have you found? Yeah, so what we've seen internationally is the successful campaigns in countries with high vaccination rates have had a focus on the importance of getting vaccinated to get back to normality with really clear and strong messaging and people just enjoying life as usual. Um, it's a pretty stark contrast to, to what we've seen so far from the Australian government. Just a few examples, um, the vaccination campaign in New Zealand shows a few great things. One, there's a door to a vaccination clinic and, and a doctor declaring the door is the door to freedom. Um, and there's all these characters walking around saying things like, I'm going to get vaccinated because it's time to see my mum again. And it's all set to sort of a catchy song. The ad in France, which came out a few months ago, it does have some similar similarities to Australia's in that there are some images of arms getting the jab, but it quite cleverly shows, you know, each time someone gets a jab, another shop door opens and, and things are moving back to normal. And it's also soundtracked by the great man Pharrell Williams and his song Freedom, which is very catchy too. Uh, but for me, the Singapore campaign is really the pinnacle of awesome public health advertising during this pandemic. They've released a few videos with catchy songs, most recently one that uh, has a sort of a string of local celebrities with the tagline together towards a new normal. But the chorus of that song, let's test, let's treat, let's vaccinate is insanely catchy. It's been in my head for several weeks. And as a former music journo who listens to a lot of new music, that's huge props to the Singapore government. That makes me quite proud, actually, being uh, someone of uh, Singaporean heritage. We, we've done something creative. Fantastic. Coming up next, Changes at Nine as Chris Jantz departs. Nine announced on Tuesday that Chris Jantz, one of the key players in the revitalization of Fairfax, is departing the media organization, Nine now, of course, which uh, took over Fairfax. He served as the head of the Metro publishing business for the past four years and has also previously been CEO and managing director of Allure Media as well as the CEO of HuffPost Australia. He was also in the running for the top job at Nine, which eventually went to Mike Sneesby. Xander, how is Nine going to replace someone as influential as Chris Chance? Yeah, so of course, it's a significant departure for Nine, but not completely unexpected. As you mentioned there, when the CEO gig went to Mike Sneesby, uh, the chair of Nine, Peter Costello, revealed that Jans was one of several people to express interest in the gig. Um, so I don't think everyone expected him to stay around forever after that. And just in terms of the specifics of how he'll be replaced there, uh, Nine announced this week that it will promote James Chessel to Managing Director of Publishing and also Car Advice and Drive CEO Alex Parson to the role of Chief Digital Officer. Uh, meanwhile, Tori Maguire will take on Chessel's old remit as, as the executive editor of titles The Age, uh, The Herald, Brisbane Times and WA Today. Um, and just as a side note, a note to staff that uh, Sneesby sent out, he thanks he thanked Jance for turning around those Metro titles, which were all obviously suffering in the early 2010s, um, and also thanked him for his more recent work, refreshing 9.com.au and growing BVOD platform 9Now. And for his part, uh, Jans reserves special thanks in his note to the 2016 Blue team um, in his departing note. But I'll, um, I'll leave it to Tim to sort of summarize what exactly that means. Yeah, absolutely. We published an extract uh, from your book this week, uh, Tim, which focused on uh, the Blue Team and Chris Jantz. Uh, if you search Mumbrella, the title is How Chris Jantz's Blue Team 
saved the age and the SMH. Of course, he was also well known for other significant feats, including his work at Alua Media and turning that into the business uh, that it was that eventually uh, went into Fairfax uh, as well. But uh, Tim, perhaps you can tell us a bit more about how uh, influential Chris was uh, at nine uh, and whether the departure was expected. Look, I suppose that let, let's start with that last bit, which is easy enough. You always look out for what happens when someone misses out on the top job, you know, because of course they, they, they'd be asking themselves, well, will I, will I get it next time round, Or, you know, will I have to look somewhere else for that opportunity? So from that point of view, you know, of course people were looking, you know, were looking around and one of the things that nine has going for it is, uh, you know, there was a whole really under, uh, under Hugh Mark's old generation of quite talented executives. So, you know, as, as Sander says, it was down to two internal, um, and, and one external candidate in the final round. But before that, there was a whole bunch of internal candidates. So, um, you know, that was to Hugh Marx's credit, but also, of course, you do wonder with a few of those people who didn't get it whether whether Chris might might be the first of a few, because I can think of others who who may you know wonder where their career goes goes from there. So, so yeah, expected from that point of view. Um, looks like he hasn't necessarily got a plan for for what comes next. Um, the fact that he has run you know smaller businesses himself in the past, sort of media businesses, and in quite sort of entrepreneurial way where there were businesses, you know, certainly with a law that he built rather than taking on, you know, an established business is quite an interesting set of qualifications. You know, we, um, and Damo, I can't remember when we did the interview for this, for the Mumbrella cast to talk about Media Unmade, the book. Did we talk about the blue team then? Because we I did. don't want to repeat it we too did. much. Yeah. Which you so should guess... listen to that Mumbrella cast as well. <laughs> Yes, it's weird, isn't it? I've I spent so much time talking about the book. I can't remember what I said to who. So so look, so we we you know, let let's not just go over the old ground of that then here, but you know, that's worth for for those who are interested, you know, taking uh either taking a listen to the conversation or reading the story. But you know, I I guess the short version is though, you know, we shouldn't take for granted that the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age are still here. You know, if that team who'd been doing that work in that secret office in Surrey Hills had come to a different conclusion, then those newspapers would not be in print now. So that that probably is the single biggest achievement. And do you expect uh, in the near future that we'll see more people uh, either departing or some more shake-ups within the Nine business? This seems to be in the first of, of any big ones that have happened since uh, Sneezeby's uh, become CEO. Look, I, you know, I know that Xander had the opportunity to talk to Mike this week, so it might be one that he, you know, he can answer better than me. But certainly, you know, if you're doing your job as a new CEO, you get the lie of the land and then you make changes and set a strategy. So um, it would probably be quite strange if there aren't more changes. Yeah, so I did I did speak with uh, Mike Sneesby earlier in the week um, uh, around 
around the success of Stan so far and Stan Sport. Um, and while he wouldn't really be drawn on anything to do specifically with with Chris's departure and and all that sort of thing, he did allude to the fact that the next uh, boss of Stan might be Martin Kugler, uh, who he said's been filling the void since he left that role really well um, and is extremely familiar with every part of the business and and said specifically he's delighted with the performance of Kugler. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see uh, him take on that role in the near future. Coming up next, a big week of hires and movements in Australian media and marketing. This week has seen some significant moves and departures in the media and marketing industry. Just a few hours before we recorded this podcast, it was announced that Nick Cleaver has departed 303 Mullen Low. Some of the other big stories this week included Analytics CEO Darren Stein leaving, Foxtel filling a key role as it builds up to launching Newsflash, San Remo announcing a new CMO to replace SATC-bound Eric DeRuz, and Reddit appointing a country manager as it opens its first office in Australia. Let's hone in on just a few of these. Liv, you had been tracking the possibility of Nick Cleaver leaving 303 Mullen Low for a little while now. Uh, How surprising was this news? Not at all surprising for anyone who read our coverage of the uh, buyout by Ativo Group, which is headed by Cam Murchison. Um, I think when the release was made about that acquisition by Cam, it, it said in it that there was you know, still work to be done to work out who and what will happen with the management team at 303. So Nick's departure is not at all surprising. And yeah, we've um, had a hint of it for quite a while now and we're just waiting for the uh, final confirmation. And Tim, of course, you've uh, tracked 303 Mullen Low uh, in its various guises for quite some time now. Uh, what does this move mean for the the agency and the new owners? Yeah, look, I so, you know, Nick Cleaver, I suppose I first came across him you know, I mean, 15 years ago when I came to Australia, he was he was still running DDB at that point, but then left DDB, took the helm of 303, which was still independent, Perth-based only at that point. Um, then there was one of those classic kind of IPG reverse takeovers, which, you know, um, a couple have since been sort of, you know, almost overturned since. But at the time, as it was Low Hunt, named for the, uh, Lionel Hunt um, was, um, a f- I, I guess, a fading force in the Sydney market. So effectively, um, IPG bought 303 or the majority of 303 merged it to become, you know, 303 Low and then a f- and then later 303 Mullen Low. And um, yeah, Nick, you know, Nick Cleaver led that organisation for that time. But change of strategy from IPG, they've been exiting from direct ownership of a few of their um, agents lo- agencies locally and effectively moving almost to a franchise model. And I think that's, you know, provided the um, the opportunity for, for Cam Murchison to come in out of New Zealand, you know, who's a, you know, he's a sort of experienced agency executive himself, but also has run businesses. And I suspect this is a bit of a bridgehead for him. Uh, we'll probably see him making other acquisitions of, of, if not agencies of that type, other capabilities. So putting in a few capabilities. So, you know, effectively a mini holding company model. So 
Yes, yeah, so I imagine that's what we'll see Ativo going. That certainly seems to be what the emerging model in New Zealand has been anyway. Very interesting. Another mini holding group to look out for locally joining Hero, of course, who is in a similar sort of situation. But moving on to, to one of the other interesting moves of the week, uh, Kate DeBrito has joined Foxtel, uh, which was a, a fairly big statement for Foxtel to make in its future plans. Uh, Xander, can you explain a bit more as to why? Yeah, definitely. And um, so, Obviously, she's rejoining the News Corp family after finishing up as editor-in-chief at news.com.au at the end of last year, uh, a role that she spent four years in. Um, she's previously led News Corp's editorial network and, and been the news editor at news.com.au and also spent some time as editor-in-chief at Mamma Mia. Uh, so Foxtel now getting closer to the launch of of their new news streaming service, uh, which is set to be called Newsflash and, and is expected to launch in and around Q4 this year, um, and it'll become Foxtel's third SVOD or streaming video on demand product, sort of joining KO and Binge. Hiring a pretty well known name in Australian journalism is a pretty significant step for Foxtel and Newsflash. Debrito's got a great track record, and, and Foxtel told me earlier the week this week that she'll begin by working on the business case for the new service. Um, she'll also be jam- joined by James Law, uh, who was previously running News Corp's Newswire offering uh, quite briefly, in fact. Um, and as for Newsflash itself, uh, there's no official word on, on, the preci- on the precise programming viewers will get, but s- several reports have suggested there could be content from Sky News Australia, as well as international programming from uh, Fox News and CNN. Yeah, the, the wording of that was, was interesting in terms of working on the business case, but it sounds very much like this is going to happen and Newsflash will uh, appear in Q4 at the end of this year. Tim, what are your thoughts on that? Well, look, one thing that interests me a bit is, of course, News Corp in the UK were building up for a brand new satellite TV channel because they, they, they'd they sold their interest in Sky News UK. So, yeah, so they've been going to launch this News UK channel, which which would have been their replacement for, for, for Sky News, and then dropped it at the last moment, you know, decided that the economics didn't stack up. So it's going to be very interesting to see how they make the case in a market that's smaller, like Australia, to create this new streaming service. So, um so, yeah, I, I wonder whether we will actually ever see it. Yeah, very interesting question. Like I said, I was curious how, how some of that was uh, written in the release. But nevertheless, uh, one of the other hires uh, from this week, San Remo, has announced that James Askin levy uh, is now the CMO of San Remo. Uh, that was an internal promotion replacing Eric DeRuz who in turn replaced Brent Hill as the marketing boss of SATC. A quick plug for Tuesday's Mumbrella cast next week, where we will be speaking to Brent Hill on his move from SATC to become the CEO of Fiji Tourism. But coming up next, Xander is going to be speaking to the Bragg Media's Luke Gerges. Thank you for tuning in for another MumbrellaCast interview. I'm Xander Wilson, and this week I'm joined by the CEO of the Bragg Media, Luke Gurgis. Luke, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Xander. I um, I always see the Mumbrella as a bit of a yardstick for relevance, so I'm stoked to be here. Uh, that's really kind of you to say. Um, you've joined me at what's possibly an unfortunate time to be Sydney-based. We're in the middle of a lockdown. COVID-19 cases are rising, so we're back to recording over online. Um 
I guess the Bragg Media is pretty well versed at functioning remotely on full cylinders after coming through all of last year pretty well yourselves. Yeah, we are. We're actually super lucky. We've got um, a whole. We already had a whole bunch of um, staff all over the country, and we'd yet to set up offices in Melbourne when we hired our first staff. So, you know, and now New Zealand, and um, so we already had this remote learning infrastructure and culture before we were going to pull the trigger on offices in Melbourne and New Zealand, and eventually Brisbane, um, and then COVID hit. So we were just we just kept going as we were. I mean, the Sydney team obviously. All moved remotely, but it was it was we didn't really miss a step. Yeah, awesome, and and yeah, no slowing down last year for you guys. You obviously announced a bunch of hires. Also, in this year, you've hit the ground running too. And I just wanted to ask. Obviously, music is at the heart of of several of your core publications. And I've worked for consumer and B two B music publications myself, including some time at the Bragg. A lot of advertising traditionally, at least especially for banner ads and stuff across those publications, will normally come from big budget tours and overseas acts. How did you come to terms with sort of losing that that revenue last year, and 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 how did you have to change the way you went about, I guess, finding new business for for your publications? Yeah, really good question. So when the pandemic first hit, I can't remember the exact date, but it was some day in March, we lost a million dollars worth of revenue in three days, and that was a real big shock to us at that time. Like you said, fifty percent of our revenue in our business came from touring or events or you know when brands were doing outdoor stuff you know kind of promoting their activations and things like that um and so we already were building a business at you know we we always have this vision that we're building a company at the center of culture so what that means is we are at the center and we have a publishing business that services fans and australians as well as artists and creators in the industry um, at the moment, that publishing side of our business has reached twenty percent of the population every month, and then we also have record label investments where we help fund Australian artists create their albums and grow their careers. And then we have management and agency business, which connects brands with the biggest artists and influencers on the planet. Um, and then obviously our content and marketing arm of our business, which helps brands uh, reach their customers in really iconic and sort of memorable ways, um, whether that is offline through the events that we do or, or online, and. Um, that that's always been the core of our growth strategy. Obviously, when we first started, we literally just had the publishing business and all marketing events. But what the pandemic did was, when it hit, it ripped out half of our revenue, and it and it just meant that we kind of couldn't fuck around anymore. I don't know if I can swear on the podcast. Sorry. You absolutely uh, can. Tim swears all the time. <laughs> okay, great. I don't know. Yeah, it just meant we couldn't fuck around anymore. We had to really double down on that strategy and get to where we needed to get to in two years two years and three months and that's effectively what we had to do and what we did yeah definitely and this year i've already i alluded to a lot of big announcements you recently announced expansion into new zealand and we did speak about that at the time but how long has that been on the horizon for you guys it's always been on the roadmap we it was just look every business i feel is a hr business you have all of these grand plans and business plans and you know, five-year roadmaps with your products and your growth of your business, the reality is if you can't find the right hires, you can't execute on them. So we were always planning to go to New Zealand. Um, Right now, we're fortunate to reach 17% of New Zealand, I think, at the moment in terms of our publication reach. Um, And we were able to just find some amazing people down there. Ryan is our first hire there. And um, as soon as we were able to find the right person to really set up our business there, we pulled the trigger on it. And we're always looking to grow. So if you have any New Zealand listeners who, who want to call me, call me. And that's that's basically where we're at. 
Yeah, definitely. And I understand as well, there's some exciting news dropping after we record this podcast later this week to do with um, Tones and I, ARIA award-winning artist and, and her Rolling Stone cover. Um, what can you do? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, we're going to release the first Australian Rolling Stone cover that we did as an NFT. And Tones and I is on that cover. So what that means is, is that we're releasing an NFT store. We are lucky to get it ARIA accredited, which means all the NFT bundles that we sell will count towards Tones and I's charts. And it's a huge opportunity for us to really um, lead the way as both a publisher and a music brand and an e-commerce store in the NFT space that um, not only uh, offers something really unique to our readers and NFT collectors, but will help hopefully Tones and I get her first number one ARIA album. Um, and that's, that's what we're most excited about. For those outside the music industry who don't know, it's always a real travesty when you get a really hot Australian artist um, lose the number one spot in Australia because Eminem decided to drop a record like, you know, two days before unannounced and sort of takes the number one spot and blindsides up the whole country. Um, we're hoping that if we can launch this e-commerce store, create these NFT bundles for Australian artists, we'll be able to prevent those travesties moving forward and we'll be able to really um, help with those first week sales. NFTs in general, it feels like something that people are still a bit confused by. If I was a marketer, what what should I be excited about NFTs? Yeah, I don't think it's going to be relevant to every brand. I think if you're a brand that really wants to connect with the art scene, art culture, then you should be looking at NFTs because that is the that is the new digitized, decentralized version of what art is. And um, if that's on your, if that's important for your brand strategy, consider NFTs. If you, if you're not a brand that cares about the art scene, then you shouldn't worry about it. <laughs> Yeah, and do you think NFTs might potentially be, I guess, having having a bit more of an impact and 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 possibly uh, growing in in terms of um, interest and popularity with over the last twelve to eighteen months um, touring and other ways that artists have made money being decimated? Potentially, I don't I don't think it's for every artist either. I think, um, and, and and to be honest, it's so. It's so we're, – we're in literally year one of this thing. I know it's been around for a long time, but people are still trying to work out what the hell's going on. The, the equivalent of where NFTs are right now is kind of like when all computers ran off DOS, you know. So there's yet to be that hyper-consumer-friendly uh, wide adoption of the NFT scene. But I can guarantee you the artists, the brands, the companies that get in on the ground floor early are going to have a massive head start and a huge competitive advantage when the wider market really adopts it. E-commerce really feels like something that not just publishers but a lot of types of businesses that might not have ventured into that side of things have really moved into, um, possibly another thing that's been triggered by COVID. Um, how, what's your perspective on on the role that e-commerce can play for yourselves and I guess for the publishing industry in general? Yeah, um, I'll talk, I won't talk too much about the public publishing industry in general because every publisher truly is so different. As it relates to us, you know, we can make money from the eyeballs of our website two ways in terms of a display banner sort of sense. You know, a brand can pay us um, a CPM and we can show their ads or we can go to the open marketplace and get 
sense for it, or we can run our own house ads. If we have an e-commerce store that runs our own house, that, that is fueled by the house ads that we run, we can make 100, 200 times more money selling our own products than we can showing display ads for you know, open marketplace or, or other brands that work with us. So what that allows us to do is one, we can monetize our audience a lot better, but two, we only work with brands now that we really want to and that align with our values and that will add value to our audience. We no longer have to take every deal that comes across our desk because we really need the revenue and that's what's super exciting and that's what we're finding more and more um, as we sort of build out our kind of house ad strategy. Yeah, and just uh, looping back to Rolling Stone, which we have mentioned, um, it's it's over a year on from from the relaunch in magazine form in Australia. Um, I know that was something that you guys were really excited about doing, and it, it's really great to see it out there. Just wondering what you can talk to in terms of how subscriber numbers are doing, how advertisers have responded. You know, do, do advertisers in Australia still want to run nice glossy ads in magazines? Look, I think that's a very good question. I when I put the magazine in our business plan and sort of P&L forecast, I expected it to be a heavy loss for us and we wanted to do it because it was culturally important um, and it gave us some sort of physical representation of the brand. I didn't think it would be a profit centre for us. Now, the print magazine in of itself is by no means a profit centre, like a huge profit centre, but it is profitable, which was an amazing surprise to me. You know, I think uh, the latest Roy Morgan numbers show that we've got 152,000 readers um, on the audit. Um, We are... you know, the, the sales itself is paying for the cost of the magazine and then all the ads on top of that are what uh, are, are, I guess, what you could deem the profit. But I guess the real magic is now that it's it's kind of allowing for this full service representation of what we can do. We, we talk to a brand and we go, yes, Sailor Jerry's, you're going to sponsor the Rolling Stone Awards. You're going to be the flagship. We're going to create all of this digital content around everything that we're doing at the awards and on the lead up and post and all of this sort of stuff and really align your your brand with this iconic Rolling Stone moment and then also give you um, give you a lot of exposure in our print magazine as well. And so it allows us multiple levers to pull and multiple ways we can work with our brands and position them the, the way that they want. And um, I guess that's the real value it's adding. Um, less about the, all the profit we're making out of the print magazine because that's not the reality. It's just allowing us to pull more levels, to pull more levers, create more narrative and add more value for our partners. And uh, Rolling Stone obviously wasn't the first print publication you guys ran. Um, when when the Bragg Media was Seven Street Media, it bought the Bragg Magazine, and and you know I I worked in that office in Surrey Hills before you guys bought the magazine. So I'll make no secret of the fact that I have a soft spot for the Bragg Magazine, <laughs> and I was sad to see it go. How hard was it to say goodbye to that in print form? And was it hard to say goodbye to that, but also, you know, within the same period, launch a different magazine that, you know, obviously Rolling Stone is, is a bigger name internationally, but but was that hard to, hard to do both those things? Emotionally, yes. Uh, strategically, no. So um, obviously I grew up reading Bragg magazine as a kid and I was a a failed artist for about 10 minutes of time and my you know I couldn't believe how how big I felt and amazing I felt when the Bragg wrote about me um but you know emotionally it was certainly a big thing but but the reality is when we bought the Bragg it it made its name and its history for being the thing you picked up to find out about gigs and 
that obviously is such an old idea now and the magazine sort of never evolved from that and so when we when we took it on we kind of knew that it wasn't going to be a forever thing um and we sort of ran it for i think two years after we took it on and then eventually wound it up um because we we either had two choices we either reimagine the magazine completely um or we or uh, or we wind it up and reimagining it completely was just as hurtful as closing it for me because the, the brag was the, the sentimentality of the brag was what it was and so i didn't really have any emotional motivation to reimagine that print on the other side rolling stone magazine as i'm sure you've seen is a very different physical experience to what it is online so it is a borderline coffee table book it is very very thick the textures of the of the cover are really interesting um we have posters inside we have really great art throughout katie our art designer is is just phenomenal um and so we really gave it a physical experience it is the equivalent of listening to vinyl as opposed to putting it on spotify it's it's all about the sensory experience so that's effectively what we tried to do and we wanted to make it super distinct not just the website you know in a book um and so that's what it is and and there are people out there who really appreciate that our um our retention numbers on our annual subscriptions are i believe well i don't actually i wish i had the numbers in front of me now but um they're well above industry standard which shows the people have bought the subscriptions and they're continuing to resubscribe because they appreciate that quarterly coffee table book type experience that sits in their homes for the whole quarter and i guess that's the real distinction so strategically super easy to make those calls because they had very different visions um emotionally you're right it was tough yeah absolutely and and i I will stop talking about things that happened a long time ago shortly but you guys obviously co-opted the name the brag for for the brand um moving away from seventh street media as a name can you tell me a bit about that and and the value that that the name the brag the brag still holds within the company I just love the brag. I just love that name. And um, I wish there was a lot more deeper strategy to it than, than we, you know, we uh, we chose the brag over 7th Street because this and this. The brag is just awesome and it's close to my heart and that's why we rebranded the whole company to the brag media. Um, you know, you could argue at the time Tone Deaf was our biggest site. You know, why didn't we change it to Tone Deaf Media? Um, but the reality is Tone Deaf is a music site and, and purely focused on music and the brag is about more, more than that. It's about culture. It's about comedians. It's about food. It's about all of that sort of stuff. So it really embraced all of our personalities and that's why we went with the brag media. Yeah, fair. And looking forward to the rest of the year, um, obviously earlier this year uh, you locked in some pretty big ad sales deals for Variety and a bunch of other big titles there. Uh, are there any plans or, 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 or do you think it would be possible for you guys to i guess launch australian editions of any of these big titles over over the next little while uh it is certainly possible and it is definitely being planned (laughs) there's not much more i can say though um but yes we are um a very we have a very aggressive growth strategy um on all of those levers this is we're talking about the media business now but like i said we also have management and agency and we also have content and marketing we've got very aggressive levers on all of that stuff um, and we're, we're going all out. And so, yes, you can expect to hear announcements around those things you spoke about soon. 
Yeah, and you speak about that growth strategy. Um, you know, we've seen that for quite a long time, and obviously, as I mentioned before, didn't slow down last year at all. Um, I think central to that, at least what I've observed, is is the bringing in of the observer newsletter sort of ecosystem. There, you know, we've spoken about this not on a podcast. Can you just tell me a bit about? the observer system and and I guess what that delivers for advertisers um, who are keen on getting involved within the Bragg Media's ecosystem of publications. Mm. So for those who don't know, the Bragg Observer is our proprietary EDM software that we built, um, which what it did was it segmented all of our audience into not only interest groups, so we've got a dedicated newsletter for certain artists, for certain food, for certain you know, travel and comedians. And we've got all these like 43, I believe, different interest groups. Um, And then within those interest groups, it also segments the audience via state and age as well. So what we can do as editorially and for advertisers, an advertiser can come to us and say, I want to target 18-year-old vegans in New South Wales. And we can segment and target that audience straight to their inbox straight away. So what that's meant was is that our open rates, so our news, the reason this whole development started because our newsletter was growing so fast. When we first bought Tone Deaf and the Brag, we had 20,000 people or 10,000 people on our uh, subscribed. Now we've got 300,000. And as that growth happened, um, because we got more and more popular, we noticed the open rates going really down. And, and that makes sense because we're reaching so many more people and it's very hard to please so many people um, with all content, you know, people were just only interested in their own little things. So we re- we we developed this EDM platform, and what we saw over time was our our open rates went from at its worst they were about two or three percent, and now they're at you know some of the observers are at eighty percent open rate. It's just actually phenomenal because if you think about it, you log into the Bragg Observer and you go, "Yep, I like vegan food. I like hip hop. I like comedians." And now you're only getting those things in your inbox that are right to your, to both where you live as well as your interest. And so the open rates are just phenomenal and the engagement's really strong. And this is going to be the, the, the data platform and the jumping off point for a lot of our product roadmap in the next 12 months. Yeah, it'll be really exciting to see what comes out of that. And just one other thing, kind of a side note here, we've, we've seen some recent news that, that O Media is planning to sell Junkie. Would that be a title that you'd be interested in bringing into the Bragg Media's ecosystem? Very good question. So the first thing I would say is that, of course, we're going to look at it. We, we, we have a very aggressive growth by acquisition strategy, as you've seen. But our situation is really interesting now because we are growing even – even with the pandemic, our revenue has grown 166% year on year. Um, our, we have the most iconic music brand, uh, not even the music, sorry. We have the most iconic brands in the world um, and a, an enormous audience. We're reaching 20% of the Australian population every month. So for us to look at a company like Junkie or any 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 publication, because we're, we're, Junkie is not the only thing on our desk, um, or, or not, so not that I'm saying Junkie's on our desk, but um, looking at a lot of things, it's like, you know, what would a brand like that bring to our stable? We already have the most iconic brands in the world. So we've got to answer, will that add value to us and to our clients and to our audience? The second question we've got to ask ourselves is, you know, our audience is already so significant. Is anyone reading the Junkie Network different to who are, who is already reading our, our, our titles? Um, second question we've got to answer. 
The third question we got to answer is obviously around the commercials. And, and like I've said, we are growing so fast year on year um, that we're in a real position of strength right now. And, and we're really excited. You know, the team's excited. We're growing the team really, you know, really fast every month. It seems like we're hiring new people. So we've got to answer those three questions um, and be super confident of all three answers before we would make an acquisition of any sort, you know, junkie aside of any sort. Um, and that's, and that's, that's the truth of it. Yeah. Fair play. Um, Luke, thank you so much for joining me on the Mumbrella cast today. It's been great to chat. Thanks, Xander. Legend. And that's it for this week. Thank you, everyone, for joining me from your homes. Tim, Xander, Liv, appreciate it. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Thanks, mate.